My guest today is Carolyn Eichner, and she's talking about her recent short history of the Paris Commune. Carolyn, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me, Graham. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to get to the Commune uh, quickly, this this outsize event in the history of anarchism that often uh, seems to get left out of most narratives of history or even revolutionary history. But before we do that, tell us about this book. It's a it's a short history of the Commune. And uh, I feel like we don't get too many short histories of anything. And I, for one, loved being able to read a short history. I'm sure you could do an 800 page book on the Commune. I'm sure people have. I would not have read it. So tell me about this book. Well, thanks. Yeah, um, there are a lot of books on the commune and uh, there are a lot of long books on the commune and there hasn't been a brief history on the commune written in 50 years in English. Or, well, I, should, I, I don't know what's been written or published in 50 years in English since the 100th anniversary. So this was written, I mean, I was asked to do this primarily because of the 150th anniversary. Uh, it, it didn't come out until a couple of months after that. Um, but Kristen Ross had started this new series on the commune and she asked me to do this book as the kind of opening of the series. And it's intended for scholars and a general audience and to be taught in classes. And so, um, it was really, I mean, it was a real challenge to explain the commune and what preceded and a little bit of what came after in a hundred pages, 30,000 words. Um, so it was really a matter of distilling it down and distilling it down. And uh, I wrote this book in, in four months, which is, you know, I, I had another book come out this year that took over a decade. So there is a, a different thing, but I've been thinking about the Commune for a long time. Um, my 2004 book, Surmounting the Barricades, Women in the Paris Commune, which was in a very different form, my dissertation before that, and in very tiny, very, very, very different form, the um, my work on the Union des Femmes was my master's thesis. So I've been thinking about this for a long time. And so when Kristen Ross asked me to do that, it was in the middle of the pandemic, I had a fellowship, so I wasn't teaching. And um, I thought, I can do this. So, uh, and I thought you know, that it, it, it both fit, filled a gap and it was fun because it's a different, it's a little bit different kind of writing than what I, I usually do. Yeah, I mean, I noticed as I was reading it, it was almost like you were sort of following key threads that would allow you to both tell the narrative and also hit the themes and characters you wanted to without having, without really having the sort of God's eye view that is often characteristic of history books and is perhaps unnecessary, but certainly always dangerous. When you when you get that high, um, you you often end up getting it, I mean, if not getting it wrong, obscuring, I feel like more than than you're revealing. And this book did not have that issue. Well, thank you. I mean, what's one of the most important things for me with writing history is the, the people who are involved. And I feel a, a sense of responsibility for doing the best job I can to interpret what they did uh, and what they thought and what their ideas were. and and the best way to represent that is to have them say it mm -hmm. and to use their words and then to use my 
knowledge and scholarship to analyze it and contextualize it. But it's also much more interesting to uh, readers to read about people and, and events. And they, these are exciting events. And so I put a real effort into making exciting events exciting because many historians make exciting events boring. And I just don't see the value in that. And I recognize, you know, that maybe, okay, obviously people don't intend to do that, but it takes a real, it takes real effort um, to, to tell a story, I think. And so it's, I'm, I'm telling a story with analysis and critique and narrative and lots and lots of quotes. I mean, it's just hearing their voices. Um, it's, I, it, I think that's a lot of what makes it come alive. I want to get to the commune, but I, I also want to say, I, I do think his, a lot of historians write books that they intend to be boring, at least in the sense that they think history is something dispassionate, something nearly scientific. And if it's interesting, you have sort of failed as a historian to tell the, you know, the the true story. At least that's my justification. I can't understand otherwise why they would be writing this way. Uh, I think that um, few people are taught to write who are trained as historians, and few people work on it themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think it may be. I mean, I think there's, there's two things. What you what you say. I mean, there's certainly people who think that to have gravitas, it has to be a kind of dry mm -hmm. something. But that I mean, that makes no sense <laughs> at all. Um, and and I think that that in recent decades, even that that has gotten better. Um, I think that in some ways, the influence of feminist history and indigenous and. Uh, um, African-American and other scholarships that are that sometimes are connected with identity or at least initially were uh, it allows a different kind of voice. And um, and I think that's something that has pushed scholarship to make it more on a human scale and a human level. And then uh, I think that it's I, I mean, I just really think that it's hard to write in a way that is readable and engaging and it's also really hard to do research and write his thing and figure things out and write scholarship and so it's like an extra mm. level of of work that you have to do um to to try and make it more readable and you know it just depends on what people's skills are what their interests are what their time pressures and you know their other pressures are whether or not that they can uh, invest that kind of time and effort yeah, uh, I think we both know that the the academic angle, the, the the career treadmill, does not necessarily care anywhere near as much about whether your writing is is good. That's one that's one of the lower down concerns for most academic writing. Yeah, yeah, and it's just really unfortunate. I mean, you know, you're up, you have to, you know, now you have to publish to get into graduate school, which <laughs> thankfully wasn't the case when you know when I was doing it, um, and then you have to publish to get tenure. And this is assuming you're one of the few lucky people who actually gets into that, these kind of positions. And if you're trying to get a tenure track position or any position, you, you have to publish and the, the pressure is intense, especially I mean, if you're teaching a, a, a teaching load that is not light, um, that if you have a life outside of academia, it's, 
it's it's the it's not conducive to the kind of um, you know reflection and writing and editing and rethinking and you know that that kind of thing. That's that's a luxury, um, and uh, that's I think something that people have at later in their some people have it later in their career. Some people have at certain elite institutions, though. There's there are other kind of pressures there. You know, they may have more resources and less teaching, but they may have greater demands on time publishing it's uh it's not an ideal scenario <laughs> to say the least okay uh i agree um i've done a couple episodes on this we can leave it at there and let's let's get to the coming so i thought i might start by just um as a as a lay person laying out my very brief understanding of the commune and then you can uh j jump off there so essentially what happens is and we covered uh, with an episode of Proudhon the rise of Napoleon III, the democratically elected emperor, and uh, he decides he's going to get ahead in the game by provoking a war with Prussia. He loses this war <laughs> spectacularly. That's the end of the empire, and this strange thing happens uh, along along the way to this loss and the dissolution of the empire. There. Uh, breaks out on in the streets of Paris an uprising against the the new government which is in some ways plenty right wing and monarchical and the people of Paris as as they are often doing uh rise up um sort of accidentally the blanquis and the other vanguardists are there but they're not there at the moment of the uprising it's really just the national guard and the people of Paris, and then this this thing that we call the Paris Commune comes into existence. It's self-governing for a very brief amount of time, and then uh, the the invading German army uh, agrees to provide the Versailles government with, among other things, its army back. And the uh, you have this Commune uh, of Paris. It's not a French Revolution. It's a Parisian Revolution at war with the quote, government of France in Versailles. And after a very brief amount of time that's filled with squabbling within the Paris Commune, the uh, Versailles government breaks through the defenses and then the the bloody massacre breaks out. And that is in, in the grand scheme of things. And then, you know, the, the government of France is restored and the Parisian government is no more. And that's the story of the Commune as I as I understand it very briefly for anyone coming into this conversation who didn't know even that level of it. Yeah, so that's a good, that's a good um, sort of outline, you know, you hit the key points and that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's what happened, right? So if, in, in general. And so um, the things, the things that I would um, most shift was the idea that it sort of just happened. So that's, it was beginning in 1868. So, you know, the Emperor Louis Napoleon, before he gets captured on the battlefield, which is, is when you say that he lost spectacularly, that's exactly right. Um, but in, he had been popular with the elites. Uh, it was great for capitalism, terrible for people who wanted freedom of speech, um, association, the press, uh, decent working conditions, et cetera. But in 1868, he his popularity had waned for various reasons, and so he introduced a, the liberal empire in which freedom of speech association and the press 
were expanded. And in Paris, what happened is these public meetings started to be held and they were there were tens of thousands of people in the city and on certain nights where there are multiple meetings going on around the city and there started out you know they really were initiated by socialists and feminists who had been activists so members of the international working men's association um men and women and uh activists in different branches of socialism and feminism and and they they hold these meetings on themes like marriage and divorce, socialism and revolution, capitalism, you know, this these kind of key uh, issues. And people come and they discuss and working class people start to speak at these also. And so basically effectively what you have is a kind of a training ground for the commune. And um, and then after the empire falls and the war is, is continues. The, the empire falls in September of 1870, and but the war continues with this new republic, the government of national defense, which is a really right, really, really reactionary kind of republic. Um, the republic, not in the sense of United States Republican, but a, 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 a representative uh, government. Um, very, you know, uh, very conservative, very reactionary, and they continue uh, the fighting. And um, there are two attempts at uprisings in, in October and in January, uh, both of which fail for various reasons. Um, and at the same time, during this, so so Prussia has, Paris is under siege by Prussia while this is going on. And working class people are, have formed political clubs during the siege and they're meeting in churches and they've taken over this sort of physical space. And this happens again in the commune in a, in a much larger way. But this is so even the siege, the Prussian siege is in some ways a kind of a training ground. And the different socialist movements are really actively ready, ready to go. Um, even earlier, there was a. a the emperor's cousin shot a socialist journalist and there was a mass named Victor Noir. There was a massive outpouring of people in the streets and the Blanquists, uh, the followers of Louis Blanqui, the revolutionary socialist who had a, a kind of top-down approach, um, who was played, his followers played a big for, uh, role in the commune. Um, his followers uh, wanted to go for it during this, um, funeral because the streets were just filled with people but the streets were also filled with the French military uh Louise Michel you know with a one of the most well-known communards writes in her memoirs that she went there dressed as a man so not to bother or be bothered and she brought a knife and she was and she was a blanquiste at this point her politics changed later but so there's so all of this is to say that there was a lot of thought and effort and planning and restraint that went into this and then but as you said ultimately the spark is that the the french soldiers come to get the cannons out of the working class neighborhood which is looking down on the city and they come before dawn and they neglect to bring horses and they're waiting for the horses and sun rises women come out of their houses to go get bread and milk for their families they see the soldiers they say, you know, what are you doing? 
<laughs> they, I mean, and this, uh, this literally, and they they step between the soldiers and the cannons, and they the soldiers fraternize, and and that's how, it, and then it begins, and then it begins, and then the Versailles, the French National Army, pulls out of the city and lays siege to it, and so then you have a civil war, a revolutionary right, civil war. Yeah, although I mean, again, if if you're a communard, you might say it's not a civil war, right? <laughs> like, um, it's a Paris doesn't belong to Versailles. I mean, this is this is the reason why. I mean, this this next question is like, to what extent does this this commune fit into the narrative of anarchism? Because it's it's become, you know, this great moment in anarchist history and Kropotkin calls it that and Kropotkin's also very clear it's not an anarchist movement the anarchists or Proudhonists are not really the leaders and although in the 21st century it seems to be the anarchists who claim the commune the commune itself certainly did not claim to be anarchists so to, to, I, I just want to briefly and I know there's ins and outs that could spend hours you to tell you know who who is doing what to what extent is 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 the commune governed or or not governed, and what happens, you know, bef before uh, before it falls apart, I guess, which does again doesn't take too long. Um, you know, in the twentieth century, the communists claimed the commune, so lots of people claimed the commune, and and that's because there was so much in it. So it's seventy two days, right? Seventy two days. But what you have is, um, and this is a central argument in in. Um, my in this book in, in the brief history that it was it's a radical experiment in it's, it's an experiment and radical democracy because you have multiple centers of power and you so you have when the when the Versailles troops pull out of the city and it's the central committee of the Parisian National Guard find themselves in power so the National Guard is the people's army not well trained, not well um, armed. I mean, really, like them up against the French National Army was terrifying to the leaders. And so you have the leaders who suddenly find them in this themselves in this position of power, and they want to negotiate. They do not want to fight. They do not want to fight. They try to negotiate. Adolf Thiers, who's the head of the military, head of the um, uh, government. Um, it refuses to negotiate because he says they're not they're it's not uh they're not political adversaries they're criminals and this is and they maintain this throughout even afterwards when the, they're deporting um communards to a penal colony in the south pacific to new caledonia they say they're, they're not political prisoners they're criminals and so they're and and uh the french national army is hell-bent on making an example of the commune a, a, violent, bloody example. But in the meantime, you have the city, so Paris is still walled at this point, and so they're, it's under siege, and, the, and the, um, the French troops are outside the walls, and there's fighting going on a little bit far away, so um, at this point. And so so, so the, the members of the um, National Guard Central Committee say, we need to have an election to, to elect a, a commune committee. Well, the Blanquists and some of the Jacobins who are in the tradition of the, the most radical part of the French Revolution um, are, are saying, this is a revolution, we don't vote. This is not how it works. These people are top down. They really are not about um, 
the words and ideas of the people, <laughs> or even a lot of, about the participation of the people. But the uh, majority of the members of the Central Committee of the National Guard were internationalists, were more kind of collectivist socialists, and they said, no, we have to have legitimacy. And so this caused all sorts of conflict right there because there's an ideological divide. So they have an election and they elect a common council. And they, in the election, though, only 50% of the population participate because women remain disenfranchised. Women were disenfranchised always. And there is no effort by feminists during the commune to try and vote, to try and get the vote, because they, they say, what is the point? This is a transitional time. We're on the verge of the new world. We don't want to waste our energy and you know, political capital on this. But the reality still is where they're talking about where this is this great democratic thing and you know people are voting, you know, 50% of the population voted. And then so then you have the Common Council, and then this is the Central Committee of the National Guard says, well, you know, we're gonna give up power, but we're gonna kind of keep some to make sure you do this revolution right. So you're at these kind of two centers of power. And and within each, you have people from different socialist factions. But then you also have the truly popular democracy, the stuff going on in the political clubs, which I mentioned there was sort of a, you know, it started during this uh, Prussian siege. And this is grassroots, working class activists, and then a fair number of the uh, communist kind of leadership or the, you know, the more uh, um, ex-leadership is the best word. Um, our men and women participate in some of the political clubs and they really push against the government they make all sorts of demands they 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 put forth all sorts of things they are a real center of power and so you have those kind of main centers of power but then you also have other all sorts of like the common government wants to redo education but they don't have time because they're you know defining what they mean by governing while fighting a war etc cetera, etc cetera. and so there's this you know commission committee of you know who says, you know, this is our proposal, and the government's like, yes, you do that. And so it is, and this is why so many people can claim it afterwards, and which is actually beautiful, right? As long as they claim it in a way that recognizes it's not all theirs. Um, because it is a truly decentralized. I mean, there is centralized power, but there is decentralized power, and it's it is radically democratic. Okay, excellent. The the only thing I'm wondering about is were there like avowed Proudhonists or Bakuninists there, and and where how how they fit in into this picture? Um, they were avowed everything there, <laughs> and you know the Proudhonists are um they had dominated the French the Paris International uh in the sixties, kind of got a little watered down near the end, and that's really um they were the really misogynist force um uh and you know when especially you know when women are, are trying to you know fully engage in the international and uh the paris international is just not um cooperating uh, because of this dominance of of uh, the prudonists and um and so yeah so they're they're present I and mean, there's sort of every kind of socialism and and you know every kind of what we would now call you know progressive movement and um including different kinds of feminisms and different uh, multiple socialist feminisms it's it was like people with 
a critique of the existing society <laughs> were able to seize the revolutionary moment. Right. And there were, and a lot of people had pretty developed critiques because they had, you know, plenty of time to feel like there needed to be um, some change. And, and there was some um, pretty significant organizing going on in a repressive context in the 60s, in the 1860s, where people were being arrested, people were fleeing the country. Um, and you know, as, soon as, as soon as the empire fell, the republic was um, proclaimed, even the conservative republic, all sorts of people came back from, from like self-imposed exile in you know, Belgium or Switzerland or, or England. And then, and then some people came from other countries just you know, to participate. One being Elizabeth Dmitriev, who uh, was a Russian woman who was, had started the Russian emigre branch of the uh, first internet of the international in Geneva, and then went to London to represent the, the branch. And she was 20 years old and lived with Marx's daughters um, and spoke up frequently with Marx. And uh, she was one of the only communards to have read Marx because she was multilingual and Marx had not been translated to French and um, argued with him about his ideas and hers, which combined his ideas and the peasant, Russian peasant commune as a form. And then when the commune broke out, Marx had tried to send somebody else to be his eyes and ears and that didn't work out. And so he most likely asks her to go. It seems like that was the case. And then to be his eyes and ears and she got there and decided to be much more than that and started the, um, what in English is called the 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 Union de oh, that's, that's fresh the Union sorry, the Union de Femmes, which is the the Union of Women or the Union of Women for the Defense of Paris and Aid to the Wounded, which was the largest and most highly organized uh, organization during the Commune, and um, and so she you know I mean she came to the Commune. Okay, this is a great segue. I mean, tell us. Um, I don't, unless you think it's vitally important. I don't want to get into the question of whether the the National Bank should have been dissolved. I mean, that's that's the sort of classic thing, and Kropotkin writes about it. But I'm much more interested in what people were doing, women especially, but really everyone grassroots. Like how when when all of a sudden the boot is removed, and yeah, there's still not one but two or even three, if you count Versailles, top-down groups that claim they're in charge of Paris, but the revolutionaries on the ground get to actually create their versions or their improvements to society. So what were they, what were they doing that is still, you know, echoing and resonating for us today? Well, there was, it, it's, it's kind of amazing in, in a number of ways because, um, you know, in the in the book, I characterize it as a, that that there were there were really like three revolutions: it's political, economic, and socio-cultural. And those, and within each of those, there's top down and bottom up. So you have um, I mentioned, you know, education. Education had been tr controlled by the church. There was no separation of church and state until the commune. The commune declared a separation of church and state, which you know, lasted 72 days. Um, and uh, and so, uh, you know, education was controlled by the church. Girls' education was about obedience. Boys' education was about, you know, just enough to be able to be a decent worker. Um, and uh, and so the commune declared secular, mandatory, sorry, mandatory secular education, same for girls and boys. And then they also, and this is, and this, planning of this again comes from 
teachers, Louise Michelle, who is a, trained as a teacher, um, is one of the people who are involved in this and other, other teachers. So this is, um, these are educated people, they, they are outside of government and they bring this, put this plan together and it's accepted by the government about, you know, a day or two before um, the end, before Versailles come, before the beginning of Bloody Week, when the, the week where the Versailles troops slaughter 15 to 20,000 people in the streets. Um, and so, and so they, they do that. And, um, and then there are, are all sorts of, um, well, there's, it's an, there's an air of festivity, right? So there's this sense that this is a time of festival. And with that comes like an opening up of the opera, theater, all of this, the, the palace, the Tuileries Palace, which burns at the end of the, of the commune, there was a palace in Paris and what is now the Tuileries Gardens. You know, if you know Paris, it's just next to the Louvre. Um, they had these huge concerts that were opened up to people and they were, you know, free and there was food and drink. And so there was a, a sense that everyone was an equal part in the society and that they, the idea was that the worker should have a job and be able to work and then be able to come home and write a book. Not read a book, but write, write a book. Right, so the idea of, of the value of cultural and intellectual life, the life of the mind, was really on a par with, this, with, with economics, political freedoms and rights. Um, and you know, in terms of economics, there was a, a real push for the Union des Femmes. The Women's Union was reorganizing women's labor into producer-owned cooperatives. So, and this is Elizabeth Dmitriev's um, the ideas from the, the Russian peasant commune. Uh, and you know, the idea that people should have more control over their lives in multiple different ways. And the, a lot of these different ideas are also being discussed in the, in the political clubs. And there's a huge, and political clubs are intensely anti-clerical. And you know, the Catholic church dominated culture, society, politics, um, and then it dominated the physical space. There are huge churches everywhere, and this is why the political clubs meet in the churches. It's this you know, literal and symbolic takeover of, of this space. And so they are expressing demands um, from this space for all sorts of things involving you know, economic questions, um, access to, uh, well, there's the, there was a national pawn shop called the Montepieté, and one of the factors that really led to the um, uprise, the ultimate you know commune uprising, was that once the conservative government was in place, after they, the, let me backtrack a second. Um, I had said that the war continued against the Prussians, but then the French national government surrendered because they were more afraid of the working class Parisians than they were of the Prussians. And then they immediately put into place these repressive measures, which included that rents had been suspended during the siege, so rents were due. You know, all, all this kind of stuff where um, the, the people had pawned everything of value in the national pawn shop during the siege because they were starving. 
including work tools, beds, cooking pots, I mean, everything. And when I mean value, I mean literally any value. And the with amongst these repressive, repressive measures, the government said, okay, you have to come back and get your stuff now or we're just gonna allow it to be sold. And, and so this was, you know, this could not happen. <laughs> so, so one of the, the, these issues was the, the national, this national pawn shop, you know, should it even exist? And this was a huge issue of debate within the government, but then also within the, the, the political clubs were also debating this. So you had issues that were being debated on different levels with the, the members of the, the, the working class political club members being very clear about voicing what their positions were. So it's just it really there was a, just a, a kind of incredible range of expressions of ways that things could change and and acts to make them change. Wonderful. I I I'm going to feel the need now to draw back a bit um, because I do realize that it is so important to get people to understand that the the these fringe government or so-called fringe government or Versailles government, whatever you want to call it, they really were in league with the Prussian army because the great they, they were much more afraid of a of a revolutionary Paris than they were of of Prussia. And I cannot stress enough when you read the Europeans of this time period, how convinced all the ones on the left are, many of the right, that uh, that a revolution is coming. And many of them think it's an internationalist revolution. And the moment, I, I think this is just a rupture that we cannot understand. When World War I breaks out, there are socialists who think that it is. it, it can be a moment like the Commune, where when Versailles wants to fight Berlin, the people can just say, fuck this, right? We We are not going to be involved. The great nationalist uprisings, we think, of nationalism as very old because we talk about France or England in the seventh century. You know, we say like the Romans, you know, let's talk about Roman Britain and the Romans conquered England. It's like this is this is not a good way to think about what's happening in the third century AD. Nationalism really comes up in 1848 in, in these revolutions. So there was this moment when it seemed like, it really did seem like the bond of the workers in Paris and even in what will become Germany might be stronger than the bond between the, the German rulers um, and the German people and the French rulers and the French people. And the commune shows you that, you know, the true allies were the French rulers and the German rulers and the true losers were simply the people who had to do the actual fighting. And it's only after 1914 that it seems like nationalism has fully won the won the day and this revolutionary moment is is gone and i just cannot i cannot stress enough how much that was in the air and the commune i feel like is an expression of that yeah it's um this absolutely absolutely the the, the communards sent a message to prussian workers you know sort of saying that we don't want to fight you, you know, we are not your enemy. And, you know, I, this is, you know, um, and, you know, and as you said, so that, that the, the first, the international, which we now call the first international, they just called it the international, you know, begins in 1864. And on this premise that, you know, it's you know, workers of the world unite, right? It, like, literally, right? You're not, it's, it's, you know, why are we fighting the battles of 
the elites who do not have our interests at heart, sadly. Um, and, and so, as you said, again, France was, you know, France looks at the Prussians and says, you know, look, you know, you're probably facing something similar to this. Think about uh, 1848. And so they are, you know, they, they just turn on a dime and they agree to, they surrender and they surrender when the Parisians do not want to surrender because the communards had a kind of nationalism. Right, they were really, you know, supporting France. There's some internationalism in it, also, absolutely. But they're still they are they are supporting France against the invading Prussian army. But the French government, you know, is like no, 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 because I mean, there again, as you said, there is in the air this fear that there's going to be another revolution like 1848. It's in living memory. I mean, there are veterans of 1848 who are in the commune. And so it's um, France is so willing to uh, kind of, you know, just bow to Prussia that this is when Bismarck declares the German Empire. And where does he do it? In the Hall of Mirrors of Versailles. I mean, it's just, you know, the Prussian army marches down the Champs Elysees, much like decades later, the Nazi army it does. And like in 1940, Parisians close their shops, you know, put black bunting on their the fronts of their houses and their uh, and the building to, to show that it's uh, they're in in mourning for this invader. But the elites are, you know, come on in here. We'll uh, we'll let you um have our fanciest place. So, but yeah, and then so the second international, which is what is in place on the eve of World War One. By then, people were sure that working class would not kill other members of the working class, and they were they were sure of it. They had you know yeah. built this up and built this up, and by you know by then the commune immediately the commune has this legacy and is a huge thing in the in various different popular imaginary and there are celebrations of it in all over the world. I mean, all over the world. There, this uh, book that came out uh, two years ago um, by Canton de la Marose, um, de la Marose uh, it's only in French, um, called Communes. And it's about the commune, it's about the influence around the world and, and how the commune is really a global thing. And it's, it's a great, it's a really great, uh, he does a great job of, of showing this. There really hasn't been any work on that um, uh, before. Um, but it has this really global influence. But then World War I comes and the, you know, the governmental nationalist propaganda machines kick in place and, and then people are like, okay, sure, I'll go you know, shoot and die. It's um, bleak. Yeah, Kropotkin. Blames the German Social Democrats for that. That's uh, that'll that'll be a topic for another another podcast. The extent to which, yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah, to which that is true. You've now brought us where I wanted to go, which is how you know. I mean, look, the the 150th anniversary of the Commune passed without anyone celebrating it, as far as I know, including me. I didn't even do an episode about it. It just wasn't the Commune has been, 
so wow. forgotten that it was like a few weeks after. And I mean, you know, I had a glass of red wine and some French bread with my wife, but that was that was the extent of it. And then I thought, wait a second, even I'm not celebrating this. What What's it going to take to get this in our memory? Well, one thing I'm wondering about is, you know, when you go to Paris, you're supposed to go to Versailles and you're supposed to go to the Louvre, but can, can you go to the Communards Wall? Like, is that a site that one can actually go and 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 think about the commune can, can you at least tell us i guess the i mean we need to briefly cover the story of the massacre and then and then the the memory of the commune yeah um there actually were a fair number of commemorations uh, of the commune um many were canceled because of the pandemic mm. but there there I, I participated in a bunch of things online um you know, virtual uh around the world um and uh, in in France, uh, they had. It, I mean, I had you know, for years been looking forward to being here. I'm in I'm in Paris now, um, but to being here then, you know, for the anniversary. And um, you know, I wasn't because there was a global pandemic, but it was really commemorated. But not just commemorated. It was. It remains contentious because it, in France, there's the debate of do you memorialize, commemorate, or do you just mark it, mm. right? And so, like Macron and the right and the center, the commune was a bad thing. It happened. We have to recognize it as the civil war that happened. It's really been, it's barely even taught in school, yeah. but it is still really alive in the popular imaginary, especially um, on the on the left, which is you know much more substantial here than uh, than in the US. And um, so I, I was at a something called Fête de l'Humanité, which l'Humanité is the uh, newspaper that um, Jean Jaurès founded in like 1904 and uh, it's a communist newspaper and they have this massive festival to raise money every year. It's, it's I, I believe the largest festival in France every year. Um, and uh, and it was this weekend. And so they, at that, they have uh, a huge book exhibit, like a huge book exhibit. And there's so much on the continent, <laughs> but that also changed with the 150th anniversary. That really that changed with that, so it really increased. But there's an organization, the Society of Friends of the Commune, um, Les Amis de la Commune de Paris. They have a great website. They organize. Uh, it used to be once a year. I don't know if they do it more often. A, a tour like Paris Communard, like Communard Paris, where you go to the to the different sites. And what the sites are is the wall in. Uh, Père Lachaise in the cemetery, the big cemetery where many communards are buried, but also it was like the last stand during the bloody week, during the, the violent, um, the brutal slaughter, um, where about 400 communards were slaughtered. That number was contended for a long time. And actually, the number of dead in bloody week is still contentious. Those on the right say seven, 8,000 and some people on the left have said up to 30,000. It's probably around 20, 15, 18, 20. Frankly, 7,000 is enough for me for it to uh -huh. be bloody week. That's plenty. Mm -hmm. I know, I know, I know. And 1,500 versus, I, excuse me, soldiers. So in Père Lachaise, uh, there's this wall and, and, uh, against which many communards were 
killed. There's a big plaque that says to the dead of the commune at the branch. And then there's a little tiny plaque in the Luxembourg Gardens in the, in the middle of the city, that, which is also where many, many communards were, were slaughtered. It's a small plaque there. Otherwise, I just bought a book yesterday, literally yesterday, um, which is about, it's, it's, on, it, it's 21 walks around Paris on the, in the traces of the commune. So far, as far as I can tell, the person who wrote this book is not particularly familiar with the fact that there were a lot of women completely integrally involved in this revolution, which is unfortunate and is also unfortunately the case in a substantial amount of the, on the historiography, uh, which is wrong. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so um, with that caveat, uh, I don't know this person who wrote it. Um, and uh, if you are the person who wrote it, feel free to contact me. Um, <laughs> but it has these, it, it's really, I mean, I'm really glad I got it because it has these walks all over the city with different sites because there was fighting. The, 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 the French National Army was able to break into the city because somebody on their side got up on the wall and signaled when one of the gates were unguarded and they came in and they just moved up through the city. In, in the 1860s, Paris was rebuilt under Baron Haussmann. This was Louis Napoleon's project to make it into the idea of this imperial city, this with these huge wide boulevards, very elegant, you know, sort of gorgeous, like, like Washington DC or the idea of Rome, but also to be able to move troops smoothly and quickly through the city and to minimize the chance of Parisians digging up the paving stones and building barricades and fighting from behind them, which is what they had done, you know, historically in revolutions, and which is what they did during the commune. And there was a there was a, a week of street battles um, that were you know, brutal. And uh, it's a the first time that um, the machine gun was used uh, on civilians in a battle context. Well, I I want to say going back to the you know the book not recognizing the integration of women into the commune. I think I had you know gender as one of our bullets to talk about, and we didn't use that bullet because it doesn't make sense to talk about gender as an element of the commune. It makes more sense to talk about the commune, and when you do so, women are an unavoidable, inextricable driving part of that and they 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 don't need an, an an asterisk women of the commune when you talk about the people of the commune the women come up over and over yes. again yes women come up and and so though does gender itself and the fact that the 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 power of the commune was intensely gendered i mean they still those those in the formal positions of power conceptualized citizenship as masculine they continue to marginalize women and the so a soldier a citizen was absolutely defined and conceptualized as masculine and so when women transgressed tried to transgress and did transgress that barrier for example on the battlefield a site that is completely gendered male they were not well received by the leadership 
of the um, the National Guard, but they were well received by many of the rank and file. But um, I, I just you know I think it's important to think about gender as being both you know men have gender, women have gender. But and, and this is you know so, and this is just this is something with this book that I have done is to fully integrate women and gender into the book without saying that because it, exactly as you said everything is gender everything is gendered and power is gendered not just people so um yeah it's just uh that's i think that's one of the things that i'm um, most pleased about with this book is that it is just completely fully integrated yeah it's and, inextricable absolutely yeah yeah. Okay, we're we're running to the end of our time, so now I just have to ask: Is you know what 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 haven't we covered? <laughs> this is of course there's lots we haven't covered. Yeah, so, so is there anything in particular that you think people need to take away that we haven't uh, discussed? Um, you know, you're the you're you're the expert. This is your chance to add anything you want to add. Women were blamed for burning Paris. Uh, Paris burnt. First of all, <laughs> Paris burnt. Um, Women were blamed for burning Paris. Um, there was the figure of the Petroleuse, which is the, the woman incendiary. Uh, and they were, you know, portrayed as shrews, you know, crazed, you know, completely apolitical, just enraged. And and this was one of the rationales for the um, soldiers to shoot so many women and children because they thought that children were their accomplices. They thought they were carrying buckets of kerosene or, you know, pe petrol. And um, often it was usually just milk. But uh, the, in reality, many women did participate in burning the city, as well as men. Um, it was not a, a that was not a gendered thing. But women were were blamed for this because the commune didn't just invert categories of class; it also inverted categories of gender. And this is part of what made it so terrifying, and part of what was central, really, to why the French national government was so intent on making an example that this would never happen again and making sure that it was such a brutal crushing that it would be too terrifying and impossible for any any anyone to do it again and the eyes of the world were were on them okay wow that's <laughs> that's a striking place to end carolyn thank you so much the book uh, again is the paris commune a brief history and it's uh something that uh, I, I certainly recommend the book to anyone i mean if you've got a spare afternoon you can you can read it and it will it will just continue opening uh doors for you to go down and learn more thank you so much carolyn thank you graham <laughs>